new reality for the world's biggest oil-producing countries and companies is being formed as the coronavirus pandemic alters projections for demand and consumption trends change. As UAE Energy Minister Sahail Al-Mazrui alluded to this week, no one could have predicted the future would arrive so quickly for the industry. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Now, BP said this week there is a growing expectation that, and I quote, the aftermath of the pandemic will accelerate the pace of transition to a lower carbon economy and energy system as countries seek to build back better so that their economies will be more resilient in the future. BP is writing off $17.5 billion as a result of its more bearish projections for oil prices. Now, oil prices have been affected by slower global economic activity amid the pandemic. The expectation is that recovery will happen at some point, with probably the longest forecast going out to 2022. But there are optimists around that think, at least for oil demand, will come back a lot quicker. UAE Energy Minister Suhail Al-Mazrui spoke at a virtual conference organized by the US think tank, the Atlantic Council, this week. He had some fascinating insights on where all of this is going. Let's have a listen now to what he believes is driving this change. Who is going to invest in the infrastructure for any new form of, uh, of energy? That happened during the, uh, the early stage of the renewable energy, and we've been, we've been through that cycle. So I think it will take time, but these we, we need creativity when it comes to the greener forms of energy. Uh, I think the, the uh, mankind in the future, we will have much more people, and we will, our consumption, even if we reduce our consumption, the demand is going to be, to be high in the, in the if, you, if you talk 10, 20 years, oil and gas are finite resources. So definitely we need something to rely on in the future. And, that, and we need to be reasonable in the pace of that transition. That was UAE Energy Minister Suhail Al-Mazrui talking at Atlantic Council webinar. Um, we're going to talk more broadly about the changes affecting the energy industry. Uh, with me is my co-host, Kelsey Warner, the National's Future Editor. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Mustafa. Good to be here. And the National's Energy Correspondent joins us, Jennifer Niana. Jennifer, hi. Hi, Mustafa. So, Jennifer, you were listening in on that Atlantic Council webinar with the UAE Energy Minister. Um, it, he seems not too pessimistic, shall we say. Um, was, was that the general vibe you were getting? Um, he seemed quite optimistic, not just on energy and oil, but also of general uh, trends in the energy sector of, of oil demand picking up. He said that he expects recovery in one to two years. He, he was also highly optimistic on compliance. Now, OPEC Plus is cutting back production by nearly 10 million barrels per day until the end of July. And one of the things that came up in discussions during the OPEC Plus summit earlier this month was the lack of compliance. And he seemed to be very optimistic that countries that didn't fully comply will reach their will will fulfill their quotas by September. And one of the reasons for his optimism and one of the biggest takeaways from this uh, virtual session we had with him uh, was that he, he said that this 
grouping or this alliance was a permanent group. And if you if you remember in 2018 when we interviewed him, uh, when he was president of the OPEC conference, and 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 he and you know he spoke about the supergroup, and he was pushing for an for an a broader institutionalization of uh, of OPEC and open uh, and non-OPEC countries. Uh, that's always been what he's he's been after. He wanted a broader group, a strengthening of the alliance, and 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 he said that he saw them as as, as something more permanent than just you know twenty three producers cutting for short term. Um, another thing to bear in mind is that this alliance will stay in place, or the, this uh, production, these production cuts will be in place until April 2022. They will be tapering them off, uh, but the alliance is for for nearly two years. So that that was one of the biggest takeaways from from the session last night. Jennifer, I want to ask you. So prior to the pandemic, the institution of OPEC and OPEC Plus was somewhat under question given the outsized role of the U.S.'s energy mix heading in, but it's been an incredibly busy time for the alliance and they've been prodigious in their decision-making power. Can you take a step back and kind of walk us through what the last few months has been for OPEC? Uh, it's It's been interesting because in April, OPEC, th- there was no deal. Um, and this was just at the, at the height of the pandemic, and then producers were producing at will. So the UAE, for instance, reached an all-time high of 4.2 million barrels per day of production capacity, and it produced at its highest levels for that month. Saudi Arabia did the same. There was no deal. And you had appeals from the U.S. president to um, to make sure that OPEC will reach an agreement. Uh, and April was also the month we saw prices fall to some of the lowest, the U.S. benchmark. Um, West Texas Intermediate or WTI um, went as low as negative forty dollars. Uh, so it was the bleakest month for the oil markets, and there was a lot of. And, and you know, President Trump is not a big fan of OPEC. He's he's um, he he had the habit of tweeting whenever they met and saying, "Oh, they're at it again. They're a cartel." Right. When I said some were questioning, I should have said U.S. President Donald Trump often questioned. Sorry. <laughs> So there was a lot of pressure on OPEC to convene and it it made sense or or people and the market started to see them as as an entity that was relevant and an entity that could affect the markets in a better way. And we've seen that. I mean, oil prices have picked up since um, uh, the historic production pact of which the U.S. was more of an observer nation. They didn't really pledge anything, but they said that you know they would support the OPEC mechanism that would be in place. So initially they agreed to cut for two months, and uh, now the production cuts have been extended until July. And for the ones that didn't comply, they will have to cut through until September. So another thing that emerged from from the last two three months we've seen is the relevance of OPEC plus um, in the oil markets. They're, they're being seen as a force for good. And President Trump made comments I think a couple of weeks ago or just few days after uh, after the the last meeting that uh, you know he was he was he, he was quite happy that OPEC plus stepped in to save jobs in the US energy industry and this is something that Sahel Mazrui the UAE energy minister mentioned uh, last night that it wasn't just about prices it wasn't just about balancing the markets it was about saving you know um, families and helping um, the industry survive this and that's a good point because uh, many industries are currently working t- 
to save what they can in this immediate aftermath of a crisis that caught us all unawares at, at the start of this year. And it certainly for stability in energy markets, stability for oil prices when demand just disappeared um, it, it is one thing in, in the short to medium term. But longer term, we all expected there would be a change in trends, whether it was um, consumer trends in terms of electric vehicles over petrol-driven vehicles or uh, consumption of uh, single-use plastics, whatever it might be. While we're seeing so much volatility at the moment, it seems as if producing countries and producing companies, wherever they are, are understanding that they have to be more resilient. And being more resilient means that they can't just be focused on one aspect of the energy chain. They have, they have to be across it all. They have to be ready for, for whatever happens maybe five years sooner, 10 years sooner than, than they initially thought uh, even six months ago. I think there's, the pandemic has become a sort of a watershed uh, moment. So last year we saw oil demand at 100 million barrels per day. And, and a lot of analysts are saying that, that that could be the peak, that we, we won't see demand at such levels again. And, uh, you know, there, there's, there are calls for increasing adaptability of, you know, of the industry. A lot of oil companies are rebranding themselves to be energy companies of the future. We've seen that with BP, we've seen that with, with many others. And I think we'll, we'll be coming to that later on uh, when we speak about BP's write-off of its oil and gas um, asset values. But one thing I'd like to mention from Mr. Mazrui's comments yesterday is how quickly, for instance, in the UAE, some companies have adapted to change. You mentioned a partnership with Honeywell where um, Strata Mubadala company switched from producing uh, these parts for Airbus and Boeing to making personal protective equipment. And he also said that, you know, with the declining investments in, in energy and, and changing narrative, you know, about energy and its impact on climate change, um, there's an increasing trend uh, where investors are uh, looking to invest more in healthcare, food securities, another industry said that w that's, that's also increasingly important to, to countries. But at the same time, he said that there is no other, um, you know, alternative to oil that we have. So it's, 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 it's still important to preserve the infrastructure that, that we have and to keep investments coming into the sector. I mean, while he said there's still research and innovation being done in other industries and, and other energy subsectors like batteries, um, how do we do that sustainably? How do we recycle these um, issues that he said should be addressed um, by the in industry as a whole? Jennifer, you touched on this a bit about how Mr. Mazuri said, you know, we need to think beyond being producers. Energy firms need to be more holistic and think more about design, becoming, you know, industrial services companies, generating local value. But what does that actually mean? Like when we're stepping kind of beyond the price of oil per barrel, what is that actually, what are some things that are actually being done within the UAE that speak to some of that? Uh, so what uh, Mr. Mazrui was referring to is something called in-country value. It's um, it's it's a program that's been that's very specific to Adnoc. So they've mandated in-country value generation of forty percent for all the co contractors that they work with and subcontractors that they have across projects. Now Aramco, for instance, has a similar program. They call it um, in-kingdom 
value generation, Iktiva. Um, and it's increasingly becoming important for Middle Eastern national oil companies to, to have more manufacturing capabilities. And, and if they're engaging with foreign companies to, to drive in investment locally to generate more jobs. So we've seen with massive projects um, in both upstream and also um, you know, downstream that this is becoming an increasingly critical component when it comes to awarding contracts, when it comes to attracting foreign direct investment, that it actually generates value to the local economy. He mentioned AI, robotics, the fourth industrial revolution. He was really bringing this idea of digitalization and technology. He was bringing some of the more niche topics that kind of get covered, you know, in some smaller rooms at major oil confabs, um, kind of into a mainstream. It felt really like this is going to have an accelerating effect on energy producers' focus on these types of investments. I think it's. I, th- I think the pandemic was was a sort of wake up call that you need uh, increased digitalization in 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 managing workflows, operations, both upstream um, and elsewhere. And and I don't think they're going to be cutting back on spending in R and D or innovation. In fact, earlier today I had a conversation with. Um, I was listening into a webinar with Cedric Nieker. He's is one of the board members of Siemens, and I asked him a question about. Uh, whether they're looking to cut back on innovation and R&D. And he said, no, in fact, we'll be, while there will be significant changes in their business, innovation and R&D is something that they will be investing more on. Uh, because, I mean, the pandemic was something that um, most producers didn't really factor in to their, you know, to, as a disruption to their supply chains. And now they've realized that if you, don't, if you can't have a workforce to deal with certain things, then it'll be increasingly challenging to, to, to pump oil out of the ground, to produce uh, various products. So I think um, spending on innovation and R&D will, will become increasingly important for producers, for energy companies like Siemens, and for all companies within the value chain. Uh, Jennifer Niana, The National's Energy Correspondent, thanks for being with us today. Uh, everyone can read her reports at thenational.ae. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Uh, unmanned aerial vehicles in the common parlance drones uh, have come to the fore uh, amid the pandemic. They seem to be uh, the kind of technology that will help us in a world where we need to uh, physically distance, but also get uh, supplies, equipment uh, and and things to people who aren't necessarily able uh, to get to where they were before or to maybe even access uh, important uh, services such as healthcare. Now, one specific area of that is vaccines. Uh, Kelsey Warner, you cover the National's Future Beat, of course. Um, you've written this week about the the importance of drones in terms of potentially delivering life-saving vaccines for the coronavirus, as well as other illnesses and diseases in the future. Uh, what's the kind of detail of that? This sort of came to me almost in the middle of the night, I suppose, when what we're hearing now is in 12 to 18 months, we're pretty confident that we're going to have a vaccine. So now the question becomes, what then? How do they get delivered, especially in places that are have been really vulnerable to the pandemic that are, you know, maybe in rural areas? I thought to myself, well, drones have been incredibly relevant during this time. Even in the UAE, they have a partnership with DJI, which is just 
a giant in the drone industry. They own about 70% market share globally, DJI in China. And their drones have been deployed for, you know, inspections, supply delivery, disinfection, and temperature checks. And this is all just here in the UAE. That's not even to reference what's been going on in China, India, the U.S., and other markets. So, yeah, as you said, I kind of dug into what would it take. And as it turns out, DJI says that they're ready to do this. And Zipline, a Silicon Valley startup that has operations in Ghana and Rwanda, has already raised its hand to say that they would be ready to scale for a vaccine should it become available in the next year, that they actually have the existing, you know, infrastructure and plan in place to supply something like that. And my fear is, is we're kind of too deadline oriented sometimes, and we need to start thinking about this right now. When you say deadline oriented, do you mean that we we say, you know, the drones have to be able to work perfectly in the next year or they won't be used? Is it more about sort of accepting a broader process, if you like. We need to be thinking about what the supply chain and delivery is going to be looking like right now. We can't, once the vaccine has been approved, cleared all hurdles, then start to blueprint what last mile delivery might look like. And drones are still nascent in a lot of markets. uh, But I spoke to the head of mobility at McKinsey. He said, Regulation still appears to be moving ahead and that innovation in the autonomy space could actually be spurred by the amount of consolidation that is set to happen in our current economic environment, which I thought was just really interesting that it just feels to me and to some people in the industry that I spoke to that the time would be ripe for drones to really play a role in in vaccine delivery. Well, you can read that full report at thenational.ae. Kelsey Warner, future editor, thanks again for co-hosting this episode. You'll be back again. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. Yes. Before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on thenational.ae. Ride-hailing company Kareem sees signs of recovery from the COVID-19 hit it has taken as it accelerates its $50 million super app strategy to lift earnings. India's economy is expected to make a strong recovery in 2022 fiscal year after a deep contraction caused by the coronavirus pandemic. That's according to S&P. And liquidators overseeing Abraj Group's insolvency now estimate Chief Executive Arif Nakvi's alleged theft may have cost the firm as much as $385 million, an amount significantly more than what prosecutors have claimed. That's it for today. If you have any questions or comments, please email malrawi at thenational.ae. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe or leave a review. All that remains to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, for producing this episode remotely, and you all for listening. Please join us again next time.